When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... I felt it felt right. Really right. I was so and I just thought, well... I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I'm your host, Erin Barker, and this week's episode is about grief. And specifically for these storytellers, the way grief has influenced their lives and careers in science. Our first story today is from Michaela Donegan. It was recorded at one of our live stream shows in February at the Tank here in New York City. The theme that night was Take Care. So in September of 2020, I got a call from my partner, Will, um, and he was confused and slurring his words. And he told me that he was on his way to the emergency room and he had had these weird headaches for a couple of weeks. So I got into a car and rushed over to the emergency room and I met his dad there and it was just like terrifyingly crowded in the times of pre-vaccine COVID. Um, but we went into this crowded ER just in time for Will's CT results to be read. Um, and there was something about the size of a golf ball in his frontotemporal lobe. And whatever that something was, was probably hemorrhaging. Uh, my training as a neuroscientist has taught me that you shouldn't have things the size of a golf ball in your brain. And it's worse if those things are bleeding. Brain cells don't like blood, which is a really weird feature of a cell dependent on blood for survival. Um, but anyway, Will got transferred to a neuro ICU at a different hospital. And his dad thought that I should go with him because as a neuroscientist, I might know more about what's going on. Now, a neuroscientist is not the same thing as a neurologist. I am not a medical doctor. So I think this knowledge is more limited than people tend to assume. Uh, but I did know enough to know that Will's neuro exams were getting nurse, worse as the night went on. And I told this to a nurse and I asked her what they were going to do. And then she kicked me out because we weren't married <laughs> and told me to send his dad up. Because of COVID visiting rules, they kicked his dad out soon, too. And just in the confusion of things, he ended up taking Will's wallet, shoes, and phone with him downstairs. Um, and then I had to get into a fight with a security guard to let me upstairs. I was in, a, like, a hospital lobby screaming. He has a brain bleed and no one to advocate for him. At least let him have his phone. Um, and a doctor getting coffee in the lobby heard me and told the security guard to let me up. And... When I got up there, Will told me that he loved me for the first time 
Um, this was the end of a long game of I Love You Chicken. <laughs> and winning didn't feel as good considering he had a brain bleed, but I said it too. Um, and the nurse let us hold each other for a minute before she kicked me out again. And then I went home and I cried in between my two roommates. We were all laying in one full-size bed, which is how we used to like to watch TV together. Um, the next day we went back to the hospital and Will could barely talk and was rushed to emergency surgery. Um, I don't remember a lot about the hours that Will was in surgery, except we weren't allowed to wait at the hospital. So Will's dad and I went to get lunch and my friends and Will's friends came to wait with us. Um, and then they called us and we went back and Will was doing so much better. Like it was amazing to me how much better he was doing just several hours of having, after having his skull cracked open. Um, and importantly, he still loved me without a golf ball sized tumor pressing on his brain. Um, a little while after this, Will was diagnosed with an aggressive form of brain cancer called glioblastoma. If you Google it, you'll run into some really fun phrases like invariably fatal and dismal prognosis. Um, even so, we were told we had every reason to be hopeful, and we were. Will was so young and healthy otherwise. He started radiation and chemo and he got tired and nauseous and his platelets dropped to dangerously low levels, but he still insisted on going rollerblading on the rollerblades he bought me for Christmas. And after that, he got better for a while and he got to go back to being a second grade teacher. He loved being a second grade teacher, even on Zoom. And I think everyone hates Zoom teaching, except for maybe me, because it let me watch him make like cute and well-executed content for kids, which was like way hotter than I thought it was gonna be. Um, I, on the other hand, really struggled with my return to work. Like I mentioned earlier, I was a neuroscientist. Um, my job entailed of drilling into the skulls of mice to implant things into their brains sometimes dissecting those brains out and cutting them into small enough pieces to look at under a microscope. And just like a lot of talking about brains, like what, how does it work? What parts are important for what? And being a neuroscientist wasn't just my job. It was a massive part of my identity and it had been for a long time, probably since I was a freshman neuroscience major in my first lab job. And I think academic science kind of demands a large part of your identity because of the sacrifices you have to make for it. It's a lot easier to swallow a system that's gonna demand that you work really long hours for pretty crappy pay and just move wherever you're gonna get a professorship and also just tolerate sexual and racial harassment uh, because the job is who you are. And I wanted it. I wanted to be a professor. I wanted to answer interesting questions. I loved advising students and I wanted to create a better scientific environment than the one I grew up in. But suddenly this thing 
this career that I had centered so much of my identity around felt a bit traumatic at every turn. I would cringe when someone would talk about the area of the brain that the tumor was found in. I like could not stomach doing a craniotomy <laughs> anymore. And like sometimes I still like feel uneasy hearing the word brain, which isn't a good thing if you're a neuroscientist. Uh, I told some version of this to my advisors, which is what you call bosses in academia to pretend that they aren't people who control your health insurance and salary. Um, and I told them that I was thinking about looking for a new job, something with better pay and more job security. But mostly I just wanted something that didn't remind me that the person I love has cancer all the time. I offered to analyze data for people so I could do some work for them while avoiding the parts of my job that were the most difficult for me. And I started applying for jobs in the spring of last year and did a bunch of interviews, made a lot of mistakes, <laughs> but ended up with a few job offers. Um, but then Will's, Will's cancer came back and we were still hopeful, but also terrified. And I had to turn down the couple of job offers that I got. It turns out supporting someone with brain cancer also demands a large part of you. Um, but instead of publishing well and being like the 5% of us who get good professorships, it was the health and well-being of the person I loved. And I'm not saying what people do in academic science isn't important. It really is but Will was more important to me. And I also think the distance that Will being sick put between me and my career made me realize that the career I had wanted for so long just didn't exist, that the support and freedom promised to me in academia just disappeared when I really needed it. Um, I told my boss that Will got sick again and <laughs> He said, take all the time you need. And then two weeks later, asked me how my job hunt was going. Um, and I wasn't. I couldn't, I couldn't work. I couldn't look for jobs. I was staying up late looking at Will's MRIs and Googling experimental treatments and trying to get him on clinical trials. And I'm a researcher. I pride myself on being a person who can find answers. And I was so desperately clawing for an answer in this situation and I just came up empty over and over again and it took me so long to grasp that some problems just don't have solutions I asked Will to marry me three times <laughs> two of which were on a hospital bed um he seemed to think that he should focus on recovering from two brain surgeries in six weeks first. Uh, but he did say yes right before his third brain surgery. Um, after trying to convince me that it's pretty silly to marry someone with cancer and that I had a lot of time to be married after he was gone. And I had to tell him that that was silly because I only wanted to be married to him. Uh, I got a marriage license by DMing the New York City clerk on Twitter because 
<laughs> Never thought Twitter would be a part of my marriage story, but here we are. Uh, because all of the appointments, the, uh, appointments were still virtual at that time for marriage licenses. All of them for like the whole summer were taken and we needed things to move a lot faster. Uh, but she set it up and we got a marriage license. And then we got married in my parents' backyard. Um, and we wore tiaras that my mom <laughs> bought us because our wedding rings weren't going to be done in time. Um, and we were sad that it had to happen under these circumstances. But also pretty happy to just be together. Um, and we got, we got a summer together. And then um, in September... My boss emailed me that he wanted to meet. Um, and this was about a week after he told a professor friend of mine that he would do whatever he could to help me. Um, so I went in to see what help would look like. And he told me he wanted me to have a plan, which I'm pretty sure meant I had to get a new job. And I tried to retort that terminal brain cancer isn't exactly a planable situation. Um, and our personal life had gotten to the point where I really couldn't work anymore. My days were full of going with Wills to treatments and scans and scheduling doctor's visits and helping him with his phone when his head hurt too much or when he couldn't bend down to pick things up. Um, so I went back in November and I told my boss that my plan was to take family medical leave and then be unemployed if I had to. And then he actually <laughs> responded with, have you looked into what people do in these situations? Uh, and I had, and it is take family medical leave and then be unemployed if you have to. Um, and he seemed kind of shocked by this, that people have to pause careers and not make money to take care of a loved one. And I don't, I don't blame him for this, uh, like in academic science, there's no management training. You're just kind of thrown into a situation where you're in charge of the, the lives of a bunch of people. Um, but he didn't even know what FMLA was. And so he couldn't help me navigate that system. And I was already drowning in paperwork for insurance and doctor's appointments and Will's disability. And it felt like this career that was supposed to be so flexible suddenly became really rigid when I admitted it that I couldn't do it the way that I originally had planned. <sighs> I know most people haven't been dropped into a Nicholas Sparks novel uh, at this moment, but I don't think I'm alone in being frustrated with the narrative about people quitting their jobs right now. All of these think pieces about the great resignation talk about this as a time of empowerment for workers. Uh, but when I finally sent in my resignation, I didn't feel empowered. I felt sad. I had felt frustrated. I had just been in a situation where I had to take job interviews while deciding whether or not to put my spouse on hospice. <sighs> People have asked me a lot if I've felt like I've lost some of myself in this. And a lot of them, I know, meant my career ambitions. Um, and the answer is yes, but not because I had to let go of a work-centric identity. I lost part of myself because I watched the person I love go through pain and uncertainty. 
And we had to say goodbye to a life that we had planned together and settle for one full of brain surgeries and drug side effects and slow walks around the block instead of going backpacking and for long bike rides and staying out past 9 p.m. And I chose that, and I still would if I could. But recently, I lost Will, too. And let me tell you, losing the love of my life took a lot more from me than losing my career did. And the fact that Will died is terrible. And I think in these moments, people look for something to distract from this kind of terribleness. I think it's because it's a reminder that life can just be randomly cruel. And looking at career uncertainty, something with a solution, is so much easier than looking at something that's a reminder that everyone you love will die someday, and maybe sooner than you planned. I don't have a pretty bow to wrap around this. I'm not sure what the lesson is. I also am pretty frustrated that we as a society try to extract lessons and growing experiences out of grief. Like, no lesson would be worth Will dying. I can tell you that I wish there was more support for people leaving traumatizing or hazardous careers right now, like healthcare workers and service workers during the pandemic. I wish people knew how scared I was and just how little space I had to think about a career while all of this was happening. And I wish we didn't have to hide terrible things that are happening to us for the comfort of others or for the sake of productivity. Thank you. That was Michaela Donegan. Michaela is a recovering academic neuroscientist who just lost her spouse to brain cancer and lost a career she had worked a long time for at the same time. She says she has a really cute dog if you need to pick me up after that bummer of a sentence. Okay, before we continue with today's episode, a few reminders. As the weather warms up, we'll be hosting a bunch of outdoor shows in cities like New York, D.C., St. Louis, Vancouver, and Toronto and returning to our regular stages in places like New York and Chicago. Find out more at storyclutter.org shows. There's really nothing like seeing stories told live on stage, and we'd really love to see you all there. We also have an online story slam tonight, April 8th, on the theme Rebirth. So put your name in the virtual hat for a chance to be invited on screen to share your story, or just hang out with us and listen to the incredible stories. And people really do bring incredible stories to these slams. Also, don't forget our big annual fundraiser, the Proton Prom, is coming up in Brooklyn on June 1st. Tickets are on sale now. We're going to be announcing our amazing lineup of storytellers in the next week. I can't wait to share them with you. So come out and join us in Brooklyn and wear your uh, science prom finest. We're also continuing to offer online storytelling workshops for individuals as well as private groups. You can find out more at storyclutter.org slash education. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storyclutter.org slash donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the Story Collider. 
Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. In fact, this month, if you become a Patreon supporter, you can get a discounted ticket to the Proton Prom. Oh, and we also have merch now on our website. If you would like to buy a Story Collider hoodie, t-shirt, or tote bag, you can find those at storycollider.org store. Your purchases help to support Story Collider's work. We're so grateful to everyone who helps to make our work possible. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Our second story today comes from Anant Paravatsu. It was recorded last December at our live stream show in Atlanta. The theme that night was clarity. My third grade teacher asked us to read a story in class. It was a wonderful story. In fact, uh, if you love reading like I do, it was the kind of story that made time stand still and made, made you forget about everything. It was a story about a girl walking to school, just a normal girl in a normal neighborhood, but she had the most amazing imagination. About halfway into the story, my teacher started asking questions. It was a little bewildering at first because I wasn't finished. But as she asked questions to the students in the class and they answered those questions, it became clear to me that everyone else was finished with the story. My teacher asked me a question and I couldn't answer because I hadn't finished the story. She got mad at me. She thought that I hadn't read the story or that I wasn't taking it seriously and, well, that was half true. She kept asking me questions, and eventually she started asking me to read out loud. The other kids started laughing at me. I think the teacher was trying to help me. I think the other kids just didn't understand, but somehow I couldn't read at the speed of other people. I couldn't read out loud because I couldn't read as fast as I could talk. So there was a, a lag between my brain and my, my voice. I, I felt cursed, uh, ashamed, uh, terrified. My mom was, was the only person who seemed to understand. In retrospect, I, I don't think she understand. I understood. I think she did what mothers do, and she made it work. She read to me. She read the story to me. And she read the next story to me the day before we discussed it in class. And as time went on, it became harder to predict what story we'd be reading in class. So she read the whole book. And then she read all of the books I was assigned to read. And this, this went all the way through high school. She would read 100 pages a week to me, and I would listen and I don't think I understood this at the time, 
but it was actually a really good deal for me because what child doesn't love hearing his mother read stories? In fact, it went beyond school. It went beyond the stories that I was assigned to. It, um, she started telling me stories from her childhood, books that she loved, stories about her life, mythology that she had learned from her mother, and it was actually quite wonderful, this curse of mine. Uh, but it was one of these things where it was wonderful at home, but not so wonderful at school. So my, my mother helped me cover it up and helped me hide it, but I knew it was there. And I was terrified uh, that, that people would, would discover this secret of mine. So like a ninja, I learned to hide in plain sight. I learned that there are certain places where people don't think stupid people can be. For me, it was physical science and math, because these are subjects that don't require a lot of reading. These are subjects that confuse everyone, not just me. They didn't confuse me any less, but, you know, I could fit in. And I worked really hard. You know, some people, people have all kinds of interesting stories about how they were inspired to do science. I, I think it was really fear that inspired me to do science. <laughs> but it worked. I, I, I really loved these subjects. What I loved most about them was just how logical they were, how much they made sense. Not initially, but if you put in the time and effort, the rules became very predictable. You know, or the consequence of the rules became very predictable. So... Through many, many years of, of quite a lot of hard work, I got something that I really wanted very badly. I, I, I got admitted to MIT. It, it was almost like the, uh, the, so the ultimate certification that I wasn't a moron. And interestingly, this thing that was such a big deal to me and my mom thought about it very, very differently. And there were two reasons. Uh, one of them is hard to explain. So I'm going to try to explain it by telling you a story. I, I realize we're already telling a story, but I'm going to tell you a story within a story. <laughs> and so the story is about a little boy. And this was a very mischievous boy. And uh, one day, the other villagers told his mother that... He had been eating dirt, and I have two boys myself, and that happens. And his mother got very, very mad and asked him, and he denied it. And like most little boys, this little boy had very little credibility. And so his mother asked him to open his mouth. And inside his mouth, his mother saw a lot more than just dirt. She saw the universe, everything the earth, the stars, the sun, the solar system, everything. My mom believed this story quite literally because she believed that God was the universe and the universe as God existed in all living things, including little boys. And to her, 
God was in every living thing. It was a difference between being alive and being an inanimate object. As someone who was raised on a farm, she saw God in the animals. Uh, you should see how she treated our dog. She named him Raja, and she treated, uh, Raja, sorry, it means king, and she treated him like a king. She saw God in her students. She was a teacher. She saw God in the plants. I remember, you know, we lived in the Washington, D.C. area, and somehow she could make a banana tree and a coconut tree survive D.C. winters. I didn't even know that that was possible. I have to admit it was inconvenient because it was somewhat hard to watch TV with the leaves of God in the way. Um, but she, you know, she just had this miraculous ability to, to see the miraculous in the most ordinary things. And can you imagine that for someone who saw things that way, that MIT wasn't such a big deal? So the second reason why my mom didn't see it the way I did is easier to understand but harder for me to talk about. And she didn't actually want me to be an engineer. She wanted me to be a doctor. She had spent a lot of time with doctors. She had a rare disease. And this disease is called alcaptonuria. And if you haven't heard of it, I'm not going to explain it. I'm glad you haven't heard of it. Around the time she had children in her early 30s, it manifested like very severe arthritis. Over the years, doctors had to replace all of her major joints. They had to replace a heart valve. Uh, the sound of it would keep her awake at night. There are lots of visits to the emergency room, lots of surgeries. When she was really tired after surgeries was when I would tell her stories. So needless to say, she really admired the doctors that took care of her, and so did I. I remember Dr. Murrow, her general practitioner, uh, our family used to refer to him as her second husband, um, so she would uh, rattle off all the medications she wanted, and he would stand there with his pen and paper just trying to keep up with her. And so I wanted that, too, in a sense. Like, I, I wanted to help people the way doctors do, but biology wasn't a good hiding place for me. I was considered myself pretty lousy at it. So... MIT may not have been my mom's dream, but it was certainly mine. And it was a wonderful place. I think what was most wonderful about it is that everyone there feels stupid. I discovered chemical engineering, which is a subject where people can help others. And I worked really hard, and I met some very, very amazing people. And... MIT did me a favor by telling me to get lost after four years, and I, I went to Berkeley, and I remember the summer before Berkeley, I read an article in Scientific American, and um, as an engineer, I had not learned a lot of quantum mechanics, and so this article was about quantum computing and how subatomic particles work, how they live in these weird 
you know, two-dimensional uh, existences and, and their, their states, their orientations depend on how you look at them and completely violated my sense of uh, scientific logic and, uh, and objectivity. And I remember it actually made me mad, and I struck up a conversation with a professor about how physics shouldn't be so temperamental. This professor became my advisor um, and supported me a great deal in coming to terms with it. I don't really feel like I understand it even now, but, but I have learned to come to terms with it. And... This whole process was a big healing process for me, I, I think. I also realized that my mom would have made an amazing scientist. She understood something intuitively that, that I really didn't. You know, I, I, I approached everything with a lot of preconceived notions. My brain should work a certain way. Uh, science should be a certain way. My mom never felt that way. She, uh, she, she, I don't recall her ever thinking that I should think a certain way, or at least she never, never really, uh, expressed it. Uh, she was a problem solver. She took things as, as they were, and she, she just made it work. In fact, I think that's what all mothers do, isn't it? So I did something that I, I really shocked myself at that time. I thought I would never, ever work in biology. But Berkeley had done something very special to, for me. It, it, it taught me how to enjoy being the dumbest person in the room, how to, how to work on things I knew nothing about, because that means that everyone else is educating you constantly. So I applied to be a postdoc at the National Institute, Institutes of Health. That was a homecoming for me. I grew up in the D.C. area. And in fact, I had gone to NIH many times with my mom, uh, they study rare diseases at NIH, and the doctors took great care of her. And there was a new opportunity to use spin physics to do structural biology, to study structures of proteins associated with Alzheimer's disease. So it was a chance for me to contribute to medicine. Um, so, so I did that, and it was really uncomfortable, but I learned a lot, and it was amazing. So I'm going to fast forward. I became an assistant professor moved to Florida, eventually transferred to Georgia Tech. That was my wife's doing. Um, and I finally convinced my parents to move to Atlanta. The botanical gardens were helpful. I took my mom there, and she loved them. And about a year ago, I was invited to give a seminar at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. So I went to Berkeley. That was also a homecoming. And I remember watching the sunset over the bay from the Berkeley Hills. If you've never done that, you should. I got a phone call. It was a nurse telling me that I was going to lose. I was going to lose my mom that night. Now, my mom... <clears throat> My mom had been in the hospital in the emergency room many times. This wasn't unusual. She had survived so many things. I, I haven't mentioned cancer, but she survived that too. I called a, uh, an Uber. I booked a flight, 
at, at leaving at 2 a.m. And through the blinding pain, I remember the 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 Uber driver telling me that she had worked as a critical care nurse. And that as unpleasant as it was, there is a certain beauty to death. And that reminded me of, of a time when my mom explained to me that the God of death was not evil. That death was just as important to life as birth. My mom had the wisdom to know where evil couldn't be found. The terminal at, at SFO was another sacred place for me because it had been a place where I had so many memories of, of, of returning home. So maybe it was a little fitting that that was also the place I said goodbye to my mom over FaceTime. So... Out of respect for my mom, I, I I feel I have to represent her feelings. She's she's not here. My mom would have hated this story. So my mom was didn't believe people should be glorified, especially not her. And she would have been very clear to me that she believed that. And like most sons, I would have come prepared with a comeback. I would have told her that being extraordinary, or sorry, there is nothing extraordinary about being extraordinary. And if you knew my mom, you would have known she wouldn't have bought that at all. She couldn't really be defeated in an argument. I want to tell you one more thing. I, this is for the people who have lost a parent. I want to tell you what my son said how he expressed his feelings when he saw the big tank at the Atlanta Aquarium. He said, God is in the fish. I'm not the only little boy who enjoyed her stories. Thank you. Anand Paravatsu. Anand holds a PhD in chemical engineering, and from 2004 to 2007, he worked as a postdoc at the Laboratory of Chemical Physics at NIH, where he learned to apply nuclear magnetic resonance to structural biology. He was part of the team and community that showed that amyloid fibril formation is a complex phenomenon. Between 2008 and 2015, he worked as an assistant professor at Florida State University in the National High Magnetic Field Laboratory, and he is now an associate professor at Georgia Tech. StoryGlider is so grateful to Michaela and Anant for sharing their stories with us. I know how hard it is to share stories like this in the wake of grief this powerful, so I want to express extra appreciation to both of them this week. The StoryGlider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, Executive Director and Co-Founder of The Story Collider, with help from Managing Producer Misha Gajewski, Education Director Nessa Greenberg, and Senior Podcast Editor Jun Chen.
Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and Marketing Manager Nikisha Roberts-Washington, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by me and Tracy Sagara, and by Kelly Vinyl and Mesa Salida, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost. Next week, we'll be back with more stories, this time about passing tests. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.